Isolation, resentment, and airing your grievances is quickly becoming the way that our times are being defined. All of these issues are present in this story as Correctional Officer Richard Earl struggles with how to deal with his. The solution for Earl might be one that we could all make more use of. He gets by with a little help from his friend. The watchtower on Main Street took 48 steps to climb. Richard Earl felt a shooting pain go up his leg on every one of them. Consider it pure joy, my brethren, he quoted to himself, when you face trials of all kinds, trying to convince himself his girlfriend was right about God having a purpose in his pain. He winced his way to the top and limped toward the gun cabinet to retrieve his 30-06 rifle. That was standard issue for Marksman 4. He had checked to make sure the safety was on. Then he slid the window open and plopped down into the office chair where he would lounge for the majority of his shift. Turning his head, he grunted hello to Avery Malcolm, a day shift marksman he was replacing. Malcolm glanced up from his copy of Corrections Monthly and showed his toothy grin. What's up, Dick? He chirped in his ever-pleasant tone. Earl stared blankly at him. Ah, just preparing for another day in paradise, he mumbled. Malcolm rose from his chair and continued to smile. Oh, you got that right, he said, gesturing with a sweep of his open hand to the view of the prison yard that filled the window in front of them. From the chair, Earl viewed the open space below vacant during this mealtime. A few inmates would filter out and onto the exercise equipment later, but the yard stayed mostly empty. The human movement he saw concentrated in the parking lot beyond the fence. It started around 5 p.m. when the clerks from the office and the suits from regional management left their cubicles and beelined for their vehicles. By 5.30, Earl was left to stare at the lifeless yard. flurry of activity caused mixed feelings. It broke the monotony, but he dreaded the sight of Townsend Murray crossing the lot and jumping into his Lexus. Murray was the regional head of personnel management. His committee recommended the governor appoint Hubert Swank to the warden's job that Earl felt was his. Earl had 10 years in as the assistant warden at Gillette County Correctional. The past two assistants had been elevated to the warden's job when it came open. Earl thought all he needed to apply, and it was his. Murray had other ideas. Malcolm stepped back towards his seat. Your head in a good place, man? Malcolm suddenly said. Earl squinted at him and cocked his head. Sure, why wouldn't it be? He replied, his voice belying his irritation. Well, your buddy Murray lowered himself to writing a piece in here, Malcolm offered tapping his index finger on the magazine that lay open in front of him. That's so, Earl replied. You'd think he ought to think twice before putting his name on something grunts like us might pick up. Well, Malcolm continued, raising an eyebrow, he couldn't pass on telling the world how dangerous and stupid we grunts are, plus he gets to promote another of his pet projects. 
<laughs> Lord knows he's got a lot of those, Earl snarked. Ten years before, one of Murray's projects had reduced incidents of violence in the Department of Corrections by 20%. Since then, it seemed like he had gotten whatever he wanted from the higher-ups in the department. Earl thought what he wanted was a psychiatrist running the show. Swank was the counseling director for Gillette. His office was just down the hall from Murray's. Earl thought they were two peas in a pod, two shrinks creating work that didn't exist for their fellow kind, but clueless on what it took to run a prison. The higher-ups didn't see it that way. To them, Murray was some kind of prophet, the go-to guy to solve management's most vexing problems. So what's the latest wisdom from his Murrayness? Earl queried, looking cockeyed at Malcolm. It's risky to allow psycho marksmen to be alone in observation towers. We tend to be anti-social loners who thrive on uh, nursing our pet grudges and see the world in terms of black and white. There's a risk we'll decide to act as judge, jury, and executioner and pull the trigger on some innocent inmate. Malcolm read from the open magazine with his best attempt at a snobby British accent. I see, replied Earl. One could hardly disagree that we are psychopathic loners. But how does the genius propose the department work a babysitter for us into his budget? Well, his murderer says budget concerns are beyond the scope of his expertise. But a rigid review of resources is in order to come up with the funds, Malcolm finished, raising a fist and thumping it against his expanded chest. And I'd love to stay around and chat about possible resources of revenue, but Shelley wants steaks on the grill tonight, so I'm leaving this paradise to you loners. Have a good one. He squeezed Earl on the shoulder as he passed him, disappearing down the stairwell. Earl had come up the hard way. He started at Gillette six months after high school graduation. He began as a correctional guard one in cell block X, segregation wing where the most incorrigible prisoners went after they were written up. Passing markmanship training with flying colors earned him a spot on one of the observation towers during the day shift. Later, he spent six months attending SWAT team training there, he took down and immobilized inmates that were violent and out of control, escorting them to their temporary home in cell block X. It was hard, dangerous work that taxed his physical limits. And Earl loved it. It gave him an excuse to devote an hour each day to weight training. And there he sculpted a body that was intimidating to anyone who cast a glance. He was ripped from head to toe a real advantage in the macho world of the Department of Corrections. Few inmates challenged a command from his lips, not wanting to go around with Earl the Pearl. The rest of the staff was happy to follow the lead of one who gained the respect of people who normally didn't act like there was such a thing. Earl climbed quickly through the ranks and was the assistant warden before his 40th birthday. From there, he thought, it was only a matter of time before he would run the place.
but history ran a different course from what he had in mind. His career trajectory changed in the course of a few seconds. While descending a staircase, he came upon a massive inmate pinning a smaller man to the stairs. A shank above his head was about to come down into the smaller man's chest. He instinctively leaped at the big man's back, landing squarely on it. The inmate rolled him over his back and tossed him towards the floor below. Fortunately, he landed on his feet, but the fall was a good 12 feet. His right leg twisted and snapped, causing a compound fracture at the calf that shocked the watching crowd. Earl spent months in a cast and six more on crutches. Three years had since passed. Chained to his desk by the injury, he was disqualified from SWAT team work other than management. No longer able to run or even walk at a normal speed, he now had a permanent limp that kept him in pain. His back was compromised in the fall as well. Now he woke nightly with a throbbing spine. With the constant pain and the lack of sleep came a change in Earl's temperament, but it was not what you might expect. He found himself more sympathetic to the claims of the inmates. Suddenly it made sense to him why one might want to strike back at the world over old wounds that lingered years after their cause was gone. A prisoner refusing to get out of his law library chair because he needed 20 more minutes to finish his handwritten brief might have reason to resist the attempts to raise him. Well, this new empathy didn't translate well into his job performance evaluations. Murray had designed them, driven by the efficient performance of the core task of the job. What counted was how fast the SWAT team got the inmate controlled and onto the SEG unit. Whether that occurred by negotiation or force didn't count for much. His new attitude that favored talk over takedowns didn't score well. The end result was that when it was time to appoint a new warden, his evaluation scores fell below Swank, who talked for a living. The message, thought Earl, was we want grunts for their muscle, not their brain. If you can't use your muscle, well, then we'll exile you to the towers, since at least you can still shoot straight. The daily reminder that he was stuck in this lonely tower was made worse by the appearance of Murray strutting across the asphalt to his shiny sports car. Swank's bulbous frame meandering across the lot shortly thereafter didn't help Mathers either. The observation tower job didn't offer much in the way of busy work to distract the mind from ruminating on the hurts of the past. He kept a daily log of activity, swept the floor and the counter once a week, looked over payroll records and read the SWAT team reports. Otherwise, he had to construct his own use of time. At first, he was diligent with his time, submitting proposals to personnel, 
None of these ever made it past Murray, who typically dismissed them as not evidence-based. Shrink-wrapped was how Earl described it. Murray wasn't going to prove anything that didn't come from one of his fellow kind. Having given up on being productive, Murray spent most of his work days now thumbing through the paperbacks he'd bring with him, or the magazines that the day shift left. He'd long ago exhausted the Netflix library on his phone. He resisted reading through Murray's latest offering, still laying open at Malcolm's empty seat. Boredom, however, eventually overtook his resistance, and he strolled over and pulled the chair up to the table. It didn't take long for his blood to boil as he read. One needn't be a prophet to predict that left untethered to supervision. With an immediate source of lethal force in hand, it will only be a matter of time before the practice of sole marksman manning observation towers results in a tragedy of immense proportion, which could leave those in charge of policy at our correctional facilities with a public scandal that could take decades to recover from. Earl slammed his fist down on the table before him. He pushed his chair back and sprang out of it, grabbing the magazine and flinging it against the nearest wall. This was the last straw, the salt pouring into his festering wound that he could not sit still for. He paced the room like a wounded animal, indicting the Department of Corrections, Swank, the Governor's Committee, the shank-wielding inmate, and God for leaving him exiled in this isolated prison cell within a prison. But most of his scorn fell on Murray. How dare that bastard pontificate about the mental state of a marksman? He'd likely never lifted a gun in his life. When had Murray ever faced down an adrenaline-fueled con and forced him into handcuffs? When had he ever stared in the sights of a rifle and contemplated whether the target on the other end was so dangerous that his next move would have to result in a bullet being plugged into the other man's brain. Where did he get off condemning marksmen for being black and white in their judgments? What other option did they have? He dropped to the floor and did 50 push-ups. Then he ran in place for five minutes. One of the three-year-old magazines said this was good for helping one cool down. It didn't seem to help much. He was even hotter after the exercise. He pulled out his smartphone and queued up a Key and Peel video. They always made him laugh, but not now. He looked at his watch and saw it was a quarter to five. Fifteen minutes until the daily parade to the parking lot. Murray's Lexus was in its usual spot towards the end of the lot. His view was unobstructed. It wasn't the first time he'd fantasized about a clear shot at Murray. His walk to the lot was well within the range of the 30-06. Before, he'd laughed it off. I'd probably miss anyway, he joked to himself. It wouldn't solve the problem. Swank would just pick up where the prophet left off. My sorry ass would just trade a smaller, lower cell for this dump. This time, it didn't seem like such a joke. He considered his future. He was seven years from the first date he could retire. 
Prospects for advancement in the Department of Corrections seemed small, as long as Murray was part of the personnel hierarchy. His back and leg weren't going to get any better. Physical therapy had told him they had done all they could do. The daily climb to this prison within a prison nearly devastated him. And what followed wasn't much better. Eight hours of sitting and staring at a never-changing dull wasteland. How much different would a real prison cell be? And the thought of witnessing Murray's overvalued cranium explode like a volcano of red on his Joseph E. Banks special brought a crooked smile to his lips that wasn't going away quickly. He shocked his own conscience, the seriousness he was giving to these thoughts. He knew acting on them would mean a life sentence. The only question would be whether he would live to do his time. If he missed, the Marksman and the Oglesby Street and Logan Street Towers would not hesitate to open fire immediately. Then he'd have to decide whether he would remain upright and expose for another shot or to go below the window and give up. One shot was all he'd get unhindered. As the clock hands on the tower wall continued ticking towards five, he scanned Murray's article once again for proof that Murray deserved his fate. prophet. He read aloud to himself, shaking his head. As if you don't think you are. He mumbled to himself as he paced the room. I guess it's time for the prophecy to come to pass, he shouted, again to no one but himself. He looked to the other towers to see if his noisy pacing and shouting had drawn any attention. Nothing unusual appeared. As he paced, he saw the first cohort of the secretarial pool trotting towards their vehicles, three of them chatting as they strolled. It would be a while before Murray emerged. He never poked his brief case-toting frame out of the gate until at least a quarter after. Thinks he's proven he works harder than the office grunts, I guess, Earl thought. But the women's presence gave him pause. What if they were caught in the crossfire? He pondered on this as the clock continued to tick, edging towards a quarter after. He thought about what a murder charge would do to his family. He had a teenage son that he rarely saw anymore. He lived two states away with his ex-wife. His folks were both gone, having passed years before. His brother was his closest link, living an hour away, but none of those ties was strong enough to pull him away from the sweet revenge that fulfilling Murray's prophecy would give. Seeing Murray go down and the pool of red forming around his lifeless frame made him smile in ways thinking of his son or brother did not. A trickle of sweat coursed the way down his forehead and through his eyebrow. 
He brushed it aside with the back of his palm and noticed for the first time he was sweating profusely. The clock hands moved to 5.11. He could feel his heart beating in his chest. He offered up a prayer, asking God to forgive him for what he had decided to do. But he really didn't think that was going to happen. Suddenly it dawned on him that he hadn't checked to make sure the rifle was loaded. He picked it up and quickly yanked back the bolt. His eyes fell on an empty chamber. He slammed the gun down on his desk and stomped towards the drawers at the bottom of the gun cabinet where the ammo was stored. From the corner of his eye, he caught sight of Bob Franklin, the regional director of vocational training, and Murray's sweet mate emerging from the gate and pacing into the lot. Murray was never far behind him. He jogged the remaining few steps to the drawer and yanked on it. It didn't budge. Damn, he yelled. The drawer was never locked. The keys were in a drawer on the other side of the room. He bolted for that drawer looking up as Franklin opened his car door in the lot just down the row from Murray's vehicle. He threw open the drawer that held the keys and found it empty. He slammed his fist down on the table and yanked the drawer open as far as it would go. That revealed no keys, but a piece of copy paper lay at the back of the drawer. On it was a note in the familiar hand of Avery Malcolm. Dick, if you really need ammo today, there's some in the pocket of my SWAT vest, but let Murray get into his car and out of range before you get it. I know you too well, old friend. Don't be the means the prophet uses to show he knows how psycho us grunts are. That way he wins. Prove him wrong. Avery. Earl took a deep breath. He dropped the paper and let it fall to the desk. He looked up just in time to see Murray's lanky frame confidently pacing across the lot. He drew another deep breath and picked up his rifle, pulled the bolt down and walked it back to the cabinet. After placing it back in the slot and shutting the glass door, he turned to see Murray's Lexus leaving the lot. He shook his head and wiped a tear from his eye. A small, joyful crease of a smile formed across his lips as he returned to his office chair.